Welcome to the Athens Frontline, a podcast presented by the Red and Black that covers topics in health and wellness. I'm your host, Simran Kaur Malhotra, here to discuss Alzheimer's disease, urban versus rural access, support systems, and stigmas with Dr. Lisa Renzi Hammond. Support for this podcast is provided by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. For more information, visit grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Dr. Lisa Renzi Hammond is a triple dog and an assistant professor in the College of Public Health. She conducts research that seeks to change how our society understands and supports people living with age-related neurodegenerative diseases. Most recently, Dr. Renzi Hammond's work has expanded to include co-development and co-direction of the Cognitive Aging Research and Education Initiative, or the CARE Center, which exists to provide and improve access to diagnoses, education, and support for those at risk or living with dementia. Hello, Dr. Renzi Hammond. How are you doing today? Hey there. I am just fine. I'm so glad to be with you today. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. I'm happy to have you. I was reading a little bit about everything that you do, and it seems like you're a superwoman. Uh, you are <laughs> er- literally doing everything everywhere, along with being a great you know, public speaker. But I was reading about the stuff that you do do, and um, in terms of Alzheimer's, it has a really close place to me. My grandfather passed away because of Alzheimer's. And I know that you also have a personal story very similar to that. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your personal connection to what you do? Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, um, first of all. And I have, I, I do, I have so much empathy. Um, so I, I come from a, a family that is sort of it's an immigrant family. So on one side, um, my family immigrated from Italy during the depression and ended up fighting for the United States during World War II. So we're relatively recent. Um, my, my dad was the first of his, of our family born in the United States. And we, we always had this impression of our family as being sort of invincible because so many of his parents' generation, my grandparents' generation lived into their hundreds um, we have centenarians on that side. There's a, there's a whole lot of really healthy agers over there. On my mom's side, also immigrants, same time period, but from Ireland. And um, not so much. They were the first generation to start developing some of these major chronic health problems that um, we see so prevalent in our society today. So it was um, my grandmother on my mom's side, and um, she was 80 when she received her diagnosis. So to, to some, that would be like, oh, wow, what a, you know, that's a nice long life. Like, you know, if only we could all live that long. And I, I sort of hear that. Um, but having seen the other side, I, I sort of understand what potential there is for aging, you know, for, for living well for as long as we possibly can. So um, as my grandmother's illness progressed, I think what became so hard about it was simply the fact that it was like saying goodbye in inches. So she'd come out to visit and she would have these islands of lucidity, um, which is sort of the moment that we call it when somebody who has Alzheimer's disease says, you know, they've been really struggling with memory, with focus, with attention, with orientation, and then suddenly seems almost like they snap out of it and say, what is happening to me? I feel like I'm losing my mind. And my grandmother had those. And then I then her next visit would come along um, and, you know, we were having trouble with, you know, basic, really basic activities of daily living, like toileting and, you know, bathing and things like that. And I remember this moment um, where she said to me, I, 
I don't know you. She kept introducing herself to me over and over again and saying, you know, hi, I'm Evelyn. I have a twin brother. What's your name? So she was, she was reintroducing herself to me. And at that point you, you don't say, no, I'm your granddaughter. You have to, <laughs> you have to know who I am. What you say instead is, hi, I'm Lisa. It's really nice to meet you. Um, and she said to me, Lisa, I don't know you, but I feel like I can trust you. And that was, that moment has always stuck with me because that was the moment when I thought, you know what, I'm going to earn that trust. Um, you can trust me and I'm going to make sure that I earn it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to make it better. Um, and that was the moment my career trajectory completely changed. It was sort of that one, that one moment that made me think I have to be worthy of that trust. I'm in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm, I'm in there. Um, and I have to, I have to make this, I have to make this count. Right. Well, you are. So that is, you know, amazing. And I can totally relate to that. You know, my grandfather had the same issues where it starts off with forgetting little things. Where are my keys? Where is my wallet? Where was I going? Or why did I get up from my seat? I can't remember. And then you kind of progress. It's a very interesting disease as well, because you just never know, first of all, when you'll get it or if you'll get it. And number two, you don't know how your body will react to it because many times those who pass away, who were diagnosed with Alzheimer's, right? That's not the reason they pass away. It's because their body fully forgets how to do their normal, you know, functions, their organs. So to go on, you know, that research, so many people, I mean, millions of Americans are living with Alzheimer's today or any other, you know, related dementia. So I was reading how care for those Americans is very different in urban areas in comparison to rural areas. Now, why and what have you learned about that? This is always the crux of it, right? So in the state of Georgia, I think we're a perfect example because we have a state strategic plan around Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. We have a task force. Um, our state government has been all in on, you know, on solving these problems. So one of the solutions that our state has come up with is, is to form these memory clinics, these memory assessment clinics. The goal is to have them scattered throughout the state. Um, and the idea is if you build it, they will come, right? So if you, if you build these memory assessment clinics, People from all over the state won't have quite as far to drive to get to a place where they can get assessed and get diagnosed. Um, but what's interesting is that some of our communities are right next door to communities that have those memory assessment clinics, yet they're not going. Um, so when we ask our, you know, our residents, why, why, you know, hey, right next door, you've got like incredible access to care. Why haven't you, why haven't you checked it out? Um, there's a lot of tr mistrust. There's a lot of suspicion. Um, just as we saw with vaccinations around, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, not everybody is willing to go out and seek medical care for these problems. We also see that there's a real difference in terms of knowledge about the disease, both among our healthcare providers and our patients, right? So if you ask, there are a lot of healthcare providers around our state who, when we ask the question, what do you do when you suspect that, that one of your patients might have cognitive loss? They say, well, nothing really. I mean, this is part of getting older. Um, which to a very small extent it is, we all do change with age, but um, they say things like, yeah, it's just part of getting older or yeah, it's probably Alzheimer's disease, but what are you going to do about it anyway? There's nothing for it. Um, so there's a really different attitude ab about it, um, depending on where you live. And, you know, there's one, one reason that we've been able to even get into these communities and find this out is through our extraordinary partnerships and the trust that they have built in Georgia's rural communities. So, you know, when we, when we host a, you know, an, an issue working group around dementia in one of our local communities, there's an extension agent and there's an archway partner, um, an archway professional who, who are there in the room with us, who have been working tirelessly to build community capital 
So, you know, the UGA is able to is able to tackle these problems in a way that no one else um, in our state actually can, which is really interesting. But it's simply also the case that in a lot of our state, there, there just isn't access. You can drive to Atlanta. You can wait for a year to get on the roster of whatever neurologist is closer to you. You can try to seek out a memory assessment clinic. But if we look at the magnitude of the problem, how many people have these problems? We don't all live next door to, you know, to the Alzheimer's disease center in Atlanta, right? We're, we're far it, here in Athens. If you wanted to get a diagnosis, our local neurologists have long waits, but if you wanted to go to one of these big memory assessment clinics, like you would find in say Atlanta or Augusta, there's a long drive ahead of you and, and yet another set of waits. So our goal is to really fix that problem is to provide access um, even in communities where there's, there's suspicion, there's mistrust of, you know, of the healthcare system. That's amazing. Accessibility is really important, especially for, you know, minority groups. Uh, many times, I know even from my community, we don't know half the things that are going on because we say exactly what you said is, you know, she's, my mother's just getting old or my grandmother's just getting old. And that's just kind of something we, we take in and that's the amount of justification that we need for it. We never ask why, we never ask how it happened, or we more importantly, never ask if it's going to happen to us uh, because of, because of genetics. Now, can you kind of explain care center and how the center has been kind of evaluating the work that you have been doing and seeing if it is well working. Oh, so I, I love the question about evaluation um, because we, we knew right off the bat, this was going to be something we were really going to have to tackle. And so the College of Public Health has extraordinary faculty who are extraordinary at evaluation who have jumped in headfirst with us. So first, let me explain the model. Um, here in Athens, Georgia, we don't actually have a whole lot of places that we can go. We do have neurologists in town, which is an extraordinary benefit. We have two hospitals. We're, we're actually doing pretty darn well from a healthcare perspective. And yet um, our own little secret shopper exercises, as we started calling from place to place to see how long it would take to get an appointment. It, it was long. It was six months to a year, depending on where we called. So even here in Athens, Georgia, and in our health district, because Athens does tend to anchor a lot of the healthcare you know, for the, for the counties that surround us, almost all of which are rural, um, there, there's a wait. So in our process, we have sort of the care center, which is located here on the health sciences campus. And we have sort of the larger care initiative. And, and the foundational part of us is that um, we are not for profit. So although um, we may get to a point someday in our future where we are, you know, where we're, where we're billing insurance, Patients are not going to pay for care out of pocket because we are aiming to see those folks who are not getting seen through traditional means who don't have access. So um, anyone in the community who is who suspects there may be a problem could call us up at any time. Um, if they don't have a diagnosis, we can provide them with one. If they if they do in fact you know meet those diagnostic criteria, we can provide them with one, um, and we then report to their primary care doctor who you know will have all of that specialty stuff sort of taken care of. Um, and, and we'll be able to work with that patient afterwards. But if someone comes to us, even if they already have a diagnosis and they're in need of support, I think that's where we really shine. So we have the, the care center here on UGA's campus is an interprofessional, interdisciplinary training space. So we have students coming to us from all over campus. I think there's 13 different academic units represented on campus. So we, um, we work with folks from pharmacy, from um, speech and hearing. We work with folks from counseling psychology, clinical psychology, social work, health policy, health promotion, um, kinesiology. We have students from neuroscience. We have students from all over campus who come here and work with our patients. 
And then we all get together and discuss what we're seeing so that each individual trainee not only has a qualified faculty preceptor to guide that work, but is learning alongside other peers who are going to be working with them someday in the future, right? It's, it's drilling this idea of a good, well-functioning, well-communicating integrated care model um, into our students at, at, at the time when I think it matters the most. So that's how, that's how we work on a, you know, on a local basis. But of course, you know, we are working in communities all over our state, including some that are on the Florida line. I mean, is, is sort of as far away from us as you get. So for those communities, um, we work very closely with the Archway Partnership and with Cooperative Extension, who are really our local gatekeepers. You know, they are living and working in the communities that they represent. They are UGA, but they're sort of our remotely located UGA. So they're the ones who are community gatekeepers. They are in touch with what is going on. They are sitting next to our future clients at, you know, at, at community events. They're writing columns for their newspapers. They're they're doing, you know, they're, they're there. They are embodied um, in those places. So we rely on them a lot. They, you know, they help us find those folks in the community who can make big decisions about, you know, how to work on these problems on a community level. And then the other major tenant is that we show up. Every community is different. You mentioned, you know, I was hearing access and I was hearing diversity in what you were saying. All of Georgia's communities are different. In some of our communities, um, there is a very, very specific single need, and that's what we're there to fill. In some of them, we're offering this entire menu of services, including things like telehealth access to the care center right in Athens, Georgia, to deal with some of those specialty services. Um, so we've gotten a grant from the National Academy of Medicine to set up telehealth in some of these rural communities in places where we know that broadband is established, like, say, an extension office or wherever our archway partner is currently working. So we're able to, to, just by being flexible, you know, find different ways, different solutions for different communities, depending on what they need and where they are and how much they are willing to, say, go to specific doctors or go to the hospital for services. Sometimes we can convince people that, you know, that taking care of your health is not a terrifying, it's not a scary thing. You can trust your doctors, you know, you can, you can go out and, and become an advocate for your health. So it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting process because it is so, so different from community to community. Well, not only is it interesting to hear about it, you know, all that I'm thinking is imagine when you had started it. I mean, all these connections, all these groups, I mean, you know, I run UGA doctors up orders, right. And we're huge and there's a lot of students and that is a lot of networking and connecting, but you are working directly with a specialized patient group, essentially, and you're still getting so many connections and networks. It's very impressive because it's a, you know, it's a disease that we don't have a full cure for, right? And so patience, I would think is huge. Patience is key. Um, do you ever feel like, you know, I'm working towards something that God knows when we'll hopefully not work towards it. Hopefully it won't be an issue. Hopefully yes. prevent it at the very least. Yes. No, you're, you're so right. Um, I can tell you that the idea for the care initiative started back in 2017. Um, so Janae Beer, my who co-directs the center with me, um, Janae's expertise is actually really different. So if you're ever interested in technology and telehealth and that side of the care's function, um, you know, she's, she's our engineering psychologist who is, who has anchored all of that. And we literally drew on the windows of the, of the Institute. So if you're ever out and any students who are listening, if you're ever out in Hudson Hall on the health sciences campus, and you walk into our building, we're, we're the one next door to the niche. But if you come out to the care center, what you would see is that on the windows of our conference rooms, all over the glass, you will see um, our terrible handwriting and dry erase marker. 
And that was back, that writing is still there from 2017 um, because that, that was it. That was when we decided um, this is what we're going to do. This is the public health problem we're going to tackle. And we came at it from our two different sides. So it's there and it's, it has taken since 2017 to get to this point. We had lots of fits and starts. Um, no one told us it was a bad idea. So we're, we're, we're going with that. We, we, we hold that close. Um, no one told us it was a bad idea, but it is massive, massive amounts of networking. If you think about what it's like to care for somebody living with Alzheimer's disease as they progress throughout their disease, there is so much infrastructure needed, so much support, so much involvement. You know, there's a, a wonderful initiative to create dementia-friendly communities so that people who are in need, if, if you are, you know, trying to get your relative from point A to point B, if you're looking for outings and things you can do with your loved one, you know, having those things baked into the infrastructure of your, of your community it's really nice. It, it ends a lot of stigma. It encourages people to embrace, you know, these our, our patients and their care partners on their journeys. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge deal, but you're right. It's, it's a lot putting it together was, has definitely been a labor of love, but we do love it. And we're really proud of it. Um, and we, you know, we want to do some good out there. And I think this is a great strategy for doing it. Right. And I'm glad that you brought up, you know, if you are part of the support system of the patient. Now, if you could give one piece of advice, whether it's from your own personal story or whether it's being a professional, you know, working or both, what advice do you have for those who have a loved one who has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or who they might be thinking that I think my loved one has a sort of dementia? What should I do? We have to turn on the lights. I mean, we have to put light on this, on this situation. So very often we'll hear, um, we'll hear from a child who has a parent with Alzheimer's disease, whose, who's, you know, other parent is doing the caregiving. And we hear the child say, um, mom won't ever bring dad anywhere because she's embarrassed or dad won't bring mom out because he's afraid that people will treat her differently because of her disease. So what is the alternative, right? We, we close the doors and we don't let the light in. Um, we are afraid of stigma. This is a disease, you know? I mean, if you broke a leg, would you hide it? Would you cease to leave your house because of your broken leg? If you had kidney disease and you needed dialysis, would you be embarrassed to tell someone? And some people are, you know, if you suffered from migraines and said, I'm sorry, I can't come to this meeting, I'm having a migraine, right? You, you might find that, that the situation has changed, that there's more and more understanding. The more light we shine on all of this, the more our societies are going to become tolerant, patient, empathic, and supportive. So the, the first big piece of advice is simply, there is no shame here, right? I mean, brains are organs. Organs don't always cooperate with us, the same as any other organ in our body. Our hearts don't always do it. Our kidneys don't always do it, right? I mean, it is, it is a disease of an organ. Um, it is not necessarily the case that we need to hide this anymore. Um, so for a lot of our families, it's stigma that keeps them from finding the support that they need. Um, and that is a real problem. I would say pieces of advice two and three are simply that care providers need to be able to take care of themselves, right? Finding a good network of folks who can help you, whether it's neighbors, whether it's visiting care partners, whether it's the care center, whoever it is, um, making sure that you are able to have a little bit of rest and a little bit of respite so that you can, you know, get done what you need to get done. Georgia's caregivers suffer from incredible stress. Um, we're talking about millions of dollars each year in health expenditure for their own stress-related conditions because it is hard to be a caregiver, right? That's difficult. And third is if you think you see something, you probably do. 
go get that diagnosis. Um, most caregivers don't know that there is federal money available to support your caregiving. So if you are caring for a loved one, um, there's compassionate allowances to social security and disability income. There's early access to your social security. There are things that we can give you um, in our federal safety net that will make this job a lot easier. So, you know, it's, you can't get it unless you have the diagnosis though. So it's going out and actively saying, okay, this is something that I need to confront and this is why I need to confront it. Right, I think that's a really good advice. Now, one kind of straying away from this as well, you see a lot of companies coming out in the news saying, we've got a pill, let's get it authorized or we're in trial and you see it's thousands of dollars and it's not authorized. So for those who are either my age or 40s, 50s, 60s, so on, and they're trying to make sure that they are eating healthy, that they're exercising, all those prevention methods, do you think it's worth it for Alzheimer's? Um, and then what research or what do you hear about working in this field about these pills and all these companies and so on? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, the vast majority of the variance is in what you do. It's behavior. Brains are organs, just like hearts, just like anything else. And the way that you treat them is everything. In fact, as a neuroscientist, my research is on exactly that. It's how to prevent. Um, sadly, when you think about, and, and I, I'm, I'm looking at all of you future healthcare providers out there, when you think about um, the medical model that we currently live under, it's very much still whack-a-mole medicine, right? Got this problem, here's a pill. Oh, now we got a new problem, here's a new pill. Oh, you got this, now it's a new pill. When all of those conditions that we're giving those pills for likely could have been prevented. Yes, there is a genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease, but you know what else runs in families? Behaviors right? Think about your favorite food. If you go like, if you dig deep and you're having a terrible day and you say, oh, I need some comfort food. What do you pick? If you're me, it's chicken cacciatore because that's what your grandmother used to make for you, right? Comfort foods, we feel comfortable with them because they're usually things that evoke some strong memory or sense of comfort, which we often get from home. So many of our behaviors we inherit as well, although it's not heritable, right? It's not, doesn't have a genetic underpinning. So the vast majority of the variants in Alzheimer's disease is behavior. It's what you do. It's, it's avoiding stress and, or at least coping with it appropriately. It's getting blood up to your brain through physical activity, which also helps with the stress. You are what you eat. It sounds like it's trite. It's not. We've been able to change brain function by changing what goes into the brain and, you know, and composes it a number of times. It's radical cognitive novelty. It's learning something profoundly new all the time to build cognitive reserve. It's getting sleep at night. It seems obvious, but physiologically it's everything. Once you have Alzheimer's disease, once it took you 80 years of life to get to that point, no pill is gonna reverse that. You know, a lot of the drugs that we're seeing marketed now are palliative. So there are things like, you know, to control the hallucinations that come with mid-stage Alzheimer's disease or to control the irritability and behavior problems that patients exhibit. Um, it's not gonna cure the disease, it's palliative. And the drugs that are on the market as cures do not cure the disease. They remove one sort of, they, they alter one physiological part of the disease that's only part of the disease for some people. And very often with a, you know, $20,000 plus price tag and a monthly MRI to see if your brain is swelling and bleeding. That's not the way. You know, the way is through prevention. Unfortunately, the bulk of our research dollars in Alzheimer's disease are still going to, to try to find a cure. 
I, I think we can all go back to Hippocrates in this one and, and start talking about food as medicine as opposed to, you know, the latest $28,000 drug is medicine. Food is medicine. It, it's true. It is medicine. Um, it's made a difference in my life. Now sleep, I know I struggle because I'm a student, but that's no excuse. I know I need to work on that. I feel like all, almost everyone needs to work on that as well. But um, I, I completely agree with you. Well, Dr. Renzi Hammond, thank you so much for taking out the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. You, again, are superwoman. <laughs> you okay I, I'm, I'm listening to someone who is running a chapter of doctors without borders possibly my favorite charitable organization in the entire world calling me superwoman let's just let's just uh let's just turn that one right back around on you. <laughs> thank you thank you all right um for those of you listening we have an episode coming up on food as medicine so hopefully you'll listen to that and connect it back to this episode all right bye-bye dr Enzi hammond take care Thank you so much for tuning in to the Athens Frontline podcast presented by The Red and Black. I'm your host, Simran Kaur Malhotra. Make sure you tune back in next week for our next episode. Until then, check us out on social media at Red and Black. Have a healthy and safe rest of your week.